Well, good morning again, church. If you have your Bibles, open up to uh, Romans chapter 5. And uh, this morning we lit the uh, candle of peace. If you've not been here, we've been looking at each of the uh, different candles of Advent. We looked at uh, hope and uh, said that without Christ, there is no real hope. But with Christ, there is great hope. We looked at love and God uh, is love. God is the definition of love, and any definition outside of God is not a real definition of love. We looked at joy, and said so joy is not based on our circumstances, but it's based on what God has done in the past and what he will do in the future. And this morning, uh, we're looking at peace, and the real peace that matters that we're going to talk about this morning is peace with God. It's kind of funny to talk about peace just a couple of days before Christmas because you might not be feeling peaceful right now. Um, In fact, you might be looking at your watches, thinking about when I'm going to wrap this up so you can go get something done. We just need to relax a little bit and come to God's word. It's ironic to talk about peace this morning because my morning did not start off peaceful. Um, I have a few things I needed to get done for the Christmas Eve service tomorrow, And so I left the house early, a little before 7 a.m. It was raining hard, and I decided to uh, try to cut across to our driveway, hit a wet, muddy patch, and fell flat on my back. And uh, had my, uh, you're not going to believe this, but I had a sports coat I was going to wear this morning and everything. You'll just have to believe me on that. (laughs) Had to go re-shower and redress, iron another shirt, and start all over again this morning. And so I'm not feeling peaceful at this point in time. But the peace that we're talking about is peace with God. Not peace that you have everything done. Not peace that everything is the way that you want it. Not peace that the kids aren't going to yell and scream and wake you up early on Christmas morning. Peace with God. We just sang uh, Silent Night. And uh, if you've been here, we've been looking at one of the songs each morning and, and just talking a little bit about the history And what's significant about Silent Night is uh, the author and the circumstances in which it came about. Uh, The author is German-born. I'm not going to try to pronounce all the names and places of these uh, different places. But but Joseph Moore, uh, he was one of three illegitimate children. His dad was a uh, mercenary soldier and... uh, he eventually just left the boys all together. And uh, mom was obviously very poverty stricken. And uh, to get baptized in the Catholic Church, you had to have somebody kind of, you know, vouch for you, stand up for you. And, and the most, you know, prominent person in his family was his godfather, who was the town executioner. So, I mean, he comes from just a real interesting background. The uh, area, kind of the assistant priest to his uh, church took him in as a foster child, basically, and raised him. They saw that he had a propensity to music, and so they poured into that, and he later decided to go into uh, the priesthood himself. He was uh, commissioned to another uh, town uh, church in uh, Germany uh, that was, the church was St. Nicholas. Isn't that interesting? St. Nicholas Church, where he pastored for a while. 
Um, and this church had a kind of an interesting background in the sense of where it stood along a river, the town had a propensity to flood. In fact, the church was totally destroyed in a flood, and it's now called uh, the Silent Night Chapel or something after this, right? And so it was totally rebuilt. And so one Christmas time, the uh, organ was uh, broken. And there's two different stories that go around. One, that it was flooded, uh, or that it was rusty, excuse me, and the other, that it was, uh, had mice or rats in it. Uh, both are probably uh, possible, right, in a town that floods all the time. And so the organ was broken, and he took a poem that he had written years before and took it to one of the church's musicians and said, I need you to put this, you know, uh, this poem to music on guitar because we don't have an organ. And it was just before Christmas. It seems like it was rushed. So Silent Night was originally put to guitar music. It was a little bit peppier, apparently, in the earlier uh, renders of it. And uh, it caught on very quickly. And in fact, a music, a special music group was passing through the town. They heard the song and they ended up taking it um, across the, Germany and then later even across the pond. And so that's where we get this song, Silent Night. And what's interesting to me about it is, is, not, is the person. He is somebody who, in society at that point in time, was somebody who was looked down upon. Somebody who was shamed. Somebody who was left out. And yet, because of Christ, and because of people's faithfulness into this man's life, we sing his song every Christmas because Christ changed him. It was not a peaceful Christmas as he was taking this poem to the, uh, to, to the guy to put on guitar music for the next service the next day. But he is singing about the peace that he experienced in Jesus Christ. So this morning, maybe uh, I've had a maybe temptation when we get to this time of the year to do maybe more of a little lightweight devotional right before Christmas. And as I looked at this word peace and what we really need to focus on, uh, it's a little bit more theological. And I want us to really kind of grab a hold of that. Uh, so Romans chapter 5. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. There's our theme. Through him, we also obtain access by faith into this grace in which we stand and we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. More than that, we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope, and hope does not put us to shame, because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit, who has been given to us. For while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly, for one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would, would dare even to die. But God showed his love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. 
For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more, now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him, we have now received reconciliation. Three things this morning. I want to talk about the storyline of the Bible. I want to talk about how we got here. And then I want to talk about how that problem of the storyline is solved uh, in in Jesus Christ, the solution to the storyline. And then finally, what sanctification looks like because of the solution, what it looks like for us to live in it today. So I want to remind us of the storyline a little bit. I think sometimes we need to take a bigger picture of what God is telling us. So first of all, just a reminder, in the beginning... God created the heavens and the earth, and he created us in his image. God created us in his image. We fast forward to the Ten Commandments. God says don't have any graven images. And the reason why we're not to have any graven images or likeness or idols is because people aren't to make images of God because God has already made images of himself in humanity. And so we are, how are we created in God's image? We're relational creatures, we're moral creatures, we're intellectual, we create, we think, we're emotional, we love, we're spiritual, there's more than that. We have all these things that make us different from the animals. We've been created in the image of God. And it's important for us to remember that we don't just treat people as God's creation at Christmas, but that year around we recognize that humanity has been created in the image of God. One of the other things that just kind of grabs me in the beginning of the story, right? We have this whole creation story and Adam and Eve and God says, don't eat from the tree. And they're walking around and they run into this serpent. And one of the things that we learn right from the beginning of the story is that God's rule is opposed. We're not introduced to the serpent. He's just there. Where did he come from? Why is he trying to confuse Adam and Eve? But what we do know is that his rule, God's rule, is opposed. We see the serpent in the garden, in the wilderness with Jesus. Peter gets called out and gets called Satan. We have a few other references. We see him in Revelation. Paul says, for we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Paul says, look, we are in opposition to these spiritual forces. I I think that sometimes we forget that. Sometimes we forget why life is difficult because God's rule is opposed. And right from the beginning in chapter three, when Adam and Eve take of the fruit, we now have a sin problem. We have a sin problem. God said, if you eat of it, you're gonna die. There's judgment to come. I try to explain that sin problem to my students because I think we just kind of rush over that sometimes. And I love in Exodus, it says this, the Lord passed before him and proclaimed to Moses, the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, 
for forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. Isn't that wonderful? What a beautiful picture of God. He's loving and forgiving and wonderful. But he goes on to say, but, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation, it contradicts itself. It just said God is forgiving. He's going to over, you know, he's going to forgive and, and love. And then the next one says, but he's also going to judge. And so that's the problem that arises because of sin. God is loving, absolutely. But God is also holy. So how is God going to solve this problem? How is he going to forgive and judge at the same time? And sometimes we read over these things and we go, oh, that's interesting. But we need to stop for a minute and go, wait a second. That doesn't make sense. It doesn't make sense for a reason. We have a sin problem. We've all sinned. And so God says, I'm going to bring a serpent crusher. He makes a promise. The seed of Eve is going to crush the head of the serpent, and the serpent is going to bite his ankle. Serpent is poisonous, so that's a deadly blow. And so right from the beginning, we're trying to find this serpent crusher. And so the story of the Bible, and some of you have, are finishing up our two-year reading plan through the Old Testament, and some of you go, why is there so many genealogies? Because we're looking for the seed that's going to crush the head of the serpent. That's the story. And you keep waiting for it to come. And they keep failing over, over, and over again. So we're waiting for this Serpent crusher. God says to Abraham, he makes a a promise with him. And one of the questions of the scripture is, how is this promise going to fill out? How are we going to return to the plan? And we looked at this, and I'm just kind of putting this theme before you. How do we get back to God's people, right? He says to Adam and Eve, you're going to be fruitful and multiply this is, this is going to be my, my people moving out. He says, he says to Abraham, I'm going to make you a great nation. God's people under God's rule. Remember, there's opposition. How do we get back to God's people under God's rule? And he says, I'm going to make you a great nation. I'm going to give you this promised land. There's going to be God's place, living in God's place. God's people under God's rule, living in God's place as we enjoy his presence. Adam and Eve walked with God in the cool of the garden. The temple, as we've been reading through the Old Testament, is this place where God's presence shows up. How do we get back to that? And if you've been doing the the Bible reading, um, there was an interesting uh, question about this in Zechariah this last week. Reading in Zechariah, and if, if you looked at the history a little bit, God's people were in Babylon, in captivity, and they're coming back into the land. This is the time of Ezra, Nehemiah, and Zechariah. And they're coming back into the land, and they're, they're rebuilding the temple, and they look back at all the Old Testament writings, and they say, wait, Jeremiah said we were going to be in captivity for 70 years, and then we're going to come back. And so they asked Zechariah, should we stop mourning? 
wait, that, that's kind of a weird question. Should we stop mourning? What they're asking is, is God going to restore the temple and his people in the place at this time? And Zechariah doesn't answer him. He says, I don't know, are you going to be like your forefathers? Are you going to keep devising evil in your heart? Are you going to keep oppressing the poor? Are you going to keep doing these things? Are you going to keep doing this? And the answer really is, you know what? Yeah, you are. Because the issue is not an obedience issue, it's a heart issue. And then, in the last few chapters of Zechariah, as we finish it up, he talks about the Messiah's coming. He talks about the future peace. And so we have the storyline of the Bible is how do we get back to God's people in God's place under God's rule, living in his presence? How do we get there? Because we have a sin problem and this serpent crusher, when, how do we, and God's word is being opposed and we were created in his image and that image is marred because of the sin. We have this huge mess. How is it going to be solved? And when Jesus is born, the angels show up and say, peace on earth. And guess what? A little bit later, Herod goes and kills a whole bunch of babies. Doesn't seem very peaceful. And so peace on earth is here. Peace comes. Peace comes through Jesus' death and resurrection. And so as we look at Romans chapter 5, I know it's kind of a big, big jump into that, but we got to look at where it comes from. Paul introduces in chapter 1. The seed is coming from David here in his introduction in chapter 1, verse 3. He introduces the problem of sin. And we're familiar with Romans chapter 1, verse 18, and, and how that is, has moved through this sin problem. He speaks of Israel's history and idols and opposition and the problem between Jews and Gentiles. He talks about being created in the image of God. It's not a Jewish thing, but it's a humanity thing. He's talked about sin, and sin isn't a Jewish thing. It's a universal problem. And Satan's opposition is not a Jewish struggle. It's a human struggle. And the promises of God are not only for the Jews, but they're filled. They're filled through the Jews. The seed, that is why Israel is special. And the seed comes through them. And then he teaches us this. Justification brings peace with God. Justification brings peace with God. Now, justification is a big theological word, so I need to define it. And so in order to define it, I'm going to throw out another big theological word, sanctification. And I want to talk about how they're different. Justification refers to God's declaration that someone is determined to be righteous in his sight. It's a legal courtroom type of word where God declares a person righteous. God declares a sinner like you and me to be righteous based on Christ taking our place. Justification is not being made righteous, it's being legally declared righteous. Sanctification is a continual process of being made more holy. It's progressive we progressively become more like Christ because God has declared us righteous. 
Now, the reason why I make that separation, if you think of sanctification in the place of justification, then you are trying to work hard to be declared righteous. That's not what Paul says. Paul says you've been declared righteous by faith. And that should bring some peace to you. Because what the storyline of the Bible tells us is that when God says, yeah, Zechariah says to the people, yeah, if you want the Messiah to come, then show justice. Care for the widow and the orphan. Stop devising evil in your heart. The problem is we can't. We keep doing it. And so God needs to change our heart. Justification brings peace with God. How do we get it? He says, by faith. We get it by faith. Through Jesus Christ. Christ died for us, verse 6. It's because of his love, verse 8. It's by his blood in verse 9. We are reconciled in verse 10. This, this, this passage is just packed with incredible promises. The second thing Paul tells us is that justification brings access to God. Verse 2, through him we have also obtained access by faith into this grace. Sin separates us from God. And there's no amount of works or good things that you can do that God says, oh, let me, let me talk with you now. You're working really hard. He says, no, the way that we have access to God is by faith when we are justified, when we are declared righteous before God. It gives us access to him. And look, if you are experiencing a season of non-peace in your life, non-joy of love, of hope, if you're struggling this Christmas, understand that the greatest thing that you can experience is not a gift underneath a tree or the right people showing up to your house or the best meat at the table. The best thing that you can experience that I can share with you this Christmas is that life-changing, eternal, changing relationship with Jesus Christ happens through faith in him. It's the most important thing you can have. Third, justification gives us hope. We've obtained this access into the grace in which we stand and we rejoice in hope. Why do we rejoice in hope? Because our situation has been changed. We've been reconciled with God. We have peace with him. We have hope in all these promises. God's people in God's place under God's rule, enjoying God's presence. Why? Because Christ died for us. We can obtain that through faith in Jesus Christ. Now, sometimes when you read something in Scripture and it sounds odd, you got to stop and read it. And I don't know about you, but when I read, more than that, verse 3, we rejoice in our sufferings. What? Not usually, okay? Laying flat on my back this morning in the mud. I did not rejoice. Didn't even cross my mind. We just, we just, that's not even bad suffering. Some of you guys are going through some incredible 
difficult things. And I try to come and I talk with you and I pray with you and pray for you. You know, people in the church come alongside you, but I, I don't usually walk into your, your home or when you walk into my ho- office and you say you're going through all these things, I, pr- I guess pastorally I should say, well, let's rejoice. <laughs> I would probably end pastoral counseling altogether. But Paul says, look, this is the reason why we rejoice in our sufferings. Because we know it produces growth. We know that the challenges that we go through are going to produce growth in our life. And he just walks us through it. And he says, right, he says, suffering uh, produces endurance. And that endurance, as we keep going through it, produces character. (laughs) Come on, you remember that? You know, you're, you're a little kid, your sports team loses, right? You're... You don't do very good on a test. You know, and your grandparents or your parents try to pull one of those, this is going to produce character. Character, I want to win. But it's true, isn't it? When we press through, when we struggle, we learn that we need to keep going. It does develop character. And parents, we, we need to be reminded of that, just a side note, not part of the sermon. But sometimes we need to let our kids struggle through some stuff. If we keep fixing it for them, they're not going to learn endurance. They're not going to learn character. That's part of growing up spiritually. A character produces hope. And the bottom line is what Paul is saying is when we go through suffering, we enter into the storyline of the Bible. I mean, we don't have time to go through the whole Exodus. But do you understand how we enter into that story? We're in captivity. We cry out to God. God brings a deliverer. And what happens? Things get worse before it gets better. We pass through the water because of the blood of the Passover lamb. And we pass through. And what, are we, what happens to Israel? They just march to the promised land and go, our God is great. No, they endure suffering, which teaches them endurance and character and the person of God that's We enter into the story. It's why Paul says this stuff was written for you. Dave, why are we reading through the Old Testament? Because it was written for you. Because we're in the story. And so we're learning to grow. We are justified by faith in Christ. This sanctification, this growth process is the result of what God has done. And so, my last point, what does sanctification look like because of this solution? One person wrote this. Sanctification is a journey, not a destination. The real key is the direction you're heading, not the distance you've traveled or the places you've reached. Sanctification is a journey. It's a process. We're reminded to stay on the right track. So we're reminded this morning that suffering has a purpose. Suffering, struggles, have a purpose. And so when we endure them, when we go through them, we don't say, God, why are you doing this? Because scripture already tells us. 
We don't say, God, that's not fair, because we're talking to Jesus who endured a great amount of suffering by the hands of his creation. We actually rejoice. Not because we like suffering, but because we're reminded we're part of the story. Second, hope and peace, these words that we've been talking about. Hope and peace drive us to become more like Christ. Which really is more of an outward focus. If if I had to just sum it up. Jesus said, I came to seek and save the lost. I love that verse. We're really big into those of you who work for school department or Intel or, you know, Nike or, you know, wherever you work. Most of you, if you work for an organization, somewhere, that that organization has a mission statement. And they have meetings that tell you what the mission statement is and remind you of the mission statement. If Jesus had a mission statement, this is it. I came to seek and save the lost. And the more that we learn about him, the more that we have peace and hope and joy, we're driven to become more like him, which is to seek and save the lost. I just say that because it worries me when I spend time with Christians a lot. And there's no conversation about the lost. Oh, there's conversations about the programs we have at church. There's conversations about the music at church. There's conversations about the pastors at church. There's conversations about the money at church. There's conversation about the building at church. But we miss the mission of the church, which is to love God, love people, and make disciples. Folks, if we love God and love people and don't make disciples, we've missed what it really means to love God. If we say that we're loving people but we're not making disciples, guess what? We're not really loving people. It has to result in discipleship making. Joy is not based on our circumstances but on Christ. And I just thought it was a good reminder as part of that sanctification process. If we can rejoice in suffering, we need to be reminded that joy is not based on our circumstances. Okay? We, we, we don't. When, when, we're falling, when we're laying on our back in the rain at, you know, 6.50 in the morning, going, that hurt? We don't go, we need to rejoice. But we can rejoice regardless of our circumstances because of who Christ is and what he has done. We recognize that we're part of the story, that we're learning something, that we're growing. It doesn't come right away, but it should get there. Sanctification is based on our understanding that we need Jesus. <laughs> the, the, the point that, that, that Zechariah is making to the people is, You're not going to do it. You're not going to do what the law commands, and you're not going to do it. And he doesn't use this term because we're not there yet. He goes into and talks about the Messiah that is to come because he doesn't quite fully understand it. But what he is saying to the group of people is, you all need Jesus. You need a heart change. You know, I know I'm speaking to the choir here. (laughs) 
Some of you were in the choir last week, but I mean, I know I'm speaking to mostly people that have been around the church for a long time. You, you know, you, you, you've heard some of this stuff. You've heard Christmas messages, whatever it is. And I just, I just want to say to you this morning, I don't care if it's your first time here or if you've been here for 60 years. If you think you're doing it because of your church attendance, because of your moral standards, because of your upbringing and your background, if you think you pulled yourself up from your bootstraps, I want to tell you right now, you are in danger of eternal separation from Jesus Christ. You say, that's not much of a Christmas message. I'm saying it because I love you. I'm saying it because if you don't recognize that you need Jesus every day, I don't care how many days you spend in the church, you might be missing what it's all about. The sanctification process reminds us every day, man, I need Jesus. Because at any day, if you want to go back and review your day and you're honest about your thoughts and your attitudes and your actions, the things that you said, the things that you didn't do, if you did a little review, you'd go, oh, I didn't live perfectly today. And some of you go, I think I did live perfectly yesterday. What, were you sick in bed all day? Look, what we're reminded of daily is that we need Jesus. And if it wasn't for the grace of God, we would be in trouble. And so I can just tell you, I know that this is a Baptist church. I know there's an expectation that somehow the pastor is more holy than everybody else. I just want to say, I need Jesus as much as you do. Daily. I mean, if you found some secret I don't know about, I mean, you'll have to show it to me in Scripture because I don't think it's there. But if you know some secret, let me know. We're reminded that we need Jesus. And I want to say sanctification is not based on conformity to a community, but to Christ. If you were saying to yourself, well, I don't know, I don't think I'm sinning on a regular basis. I don't, I don't think, I think the pastor is exaggerating that. I would say, I would, I would ask you what you're comparing to. If you're trying to fit into a community of people, maybe you are. But if you want to compare it to Christ, then we're in a little bit of trouble. We need to understand our need to conform and become like the person of Jesus Christ. So, Christmas. Without Christ, there's no hope. But in Christ, there's great hope. Love. God is love. No definition outside of God is a definition of love. Joy. Joy isn't based on your circumstances. It's based on what God has done and will do in the future. And peace. The most important peace that you can experience this Christmas is peace with God. And peace with God comes through faith in Jesus Christ. And when we place our faith in Jesus Christ, he declares us righteous. And when he declares us righteous, he gives us a new heart. And we begin a process of becoming more like Christ. And if you want to know if you're becoming more like Christ, 
Look at how you think of other people in the church and outside the church because Jesus came to seek and save the lost. And if you say, I don't care about the lost, then you got some more sanctification to go. So here's our application in action. If you're here this morning and you don't have a relationship with Jesus Christ, if you've not placed your faith in him, my challenge to you this morning is to receive the greatest Christmas gift in the world. And that is Jesus Christ. There's no magical way of doing that, but I, I would just bow your head before God today, confess that you are a sinner, and trust in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, and say you want to follow him. The most important gift you can receive this Christmas is the gift of eternal life. Second, those of you who have done that, let's make sure that we are in the next few days rejoicing in Christ above all else. Uh, There's all sorts of great things that are going to go on and time with family and whatever it is. Rejoice. Enjoy. I look forward to seeing my grandkids like many of you do. All right, we're we're going to prepare all sorts of food, as many of you are, but let's, let's rejoice in the greatest thing, and that's Christ. And we do that by making sure our conversation is still pointed at him, that it's still based in that. And then the third thing is I, I want to challenge us as a church to continue to relive this story line of the Bible, that we understand where we fit in this story. We're going to talk more about this next week, but we're finishing up our Old Testament reading two years and getting through it. And as we head back into starting that over again, I think we have a little bit bigger overview of the story. And now we can see ourselves in it a little bit better. It's written there for a reason. And so we need to relive that story and see where we are in the story. So those are some great things to do uh, this Christmas. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this morning. Uh, We thank you for Paul's words in Romans, Lord. We're reminded that uh, more than just a pick-me-up this Christmas, we need to make sure that we are totally dependent on the person of Jesus Christ. God, we need to place our faith solely and completely in the work of Jesus Christ on the cross, his death and his resurrection. God, we pray that as we celebrate in the next few days that we would do it in a Christ-centered way. I pray for those that are here that are wrestling with their place in the story and whether they need Jesus Christ, that you would draw them into relationship with you, that they would make the greatest decision that they can make this Christmas, and that is to place their faith in you. And so, God, we pray that you would continue to work in our hearts and our minds, that we would become more like you, that you would help us to love God, love people, and make disciples. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.